Good morning, everyone, and welcome back. Welcome back to Walt Disney Concert Hall. <laughs> what a great thing it is to be back in this magnificent concert hall and being able to hear our own LA Philharmonic once again. My name is Christopher Russell, and it's my pleasure to be doing Upbeat Live this morning. And my thanks to the LA Phil for inviting me to do this uh, set of talks this week. Well, on the podium for these first subscription concerts back will be our music and artistic director, Gustavo Dudamel. He's put together a program of music from the late Romantic era, all based on poetry. And as you look at the titles of the pieces on the program, you may be wondering, well, why, why is this, why are these pieces on an opening week? But the music itself covers the deepest milestones of human existence, from youth and nostalgia, to joy and love, to struggles and death. Yet each piece on the program expresses a quiet, optimistic hope for the future. The program's gonna begin with Arnold Schoenberg's Transfigured Night, then after intermission, you're gonna hear Strauss's four last songs with soprano Golda Schultz, and to close the program is Strauss's Death and Transfiguration. Having Schoenberg and Strauss on a program together actually makes sense. They were near contemporaries of one another. Schoenberg was born in 1874, and Strauss was born 10 years earlier. And then they died two years apart, Strauss in 1949, Schoenberg in 1951. Schoenberg, being the younger composer, was inspired by Strauss and was grateful to Strauss for some of the um, uh, help that Strauss gave Schoenberg early in his career. For example, Strauss recommended Schoenberg to become on the composition faculty of a conservatory in Berlin. However, later in his life, Strauss actually distanced himself from Schoenberg as Schoenberg's music began to get more and more experimental. Now, another person who was influential in uh, Schoenberg's early career may be a surprise to you, and that's Johannes Brahms. When Strauss, or, well, sorry, when Schoenberg was 22, he wrote a string quartet in D major. Schoenberg's friend and future brother-in-law, Alexander Zemlinsky, himself a fine composer, decided he was gonna show this quartet to Brahms. So here's the opening of that quartet, and if you know any music by Schoenberg, it may surprise you that he's the composer of this music. was so intrigued by this piece that he told Zemlinsky on the spot that he would pay for Schoenberg's entire musical education at the Vienna Conservatory. Now, for reasons that we don't know, Schoenberg turned down this generous offer, and there's no record that Strauss and Schoenberg ever met. However, sorry, that Schoenberg and Brahms ever met. Schoenberg, though, was always unashamedly a fan of Brahms and admired Brahms 
throughout his whole life, even as he was experimenting in atonality. And this admiration reached its zenith in 1934 with, uh, which you may know as his exuberant orchestration of Brahms's piano quartet in G minor. Schoenberg actually never did go to conservatory to study music and was largely self-taught. However, this didn't stop Schoenberg from becoming, of course, one of the most famous composers of all time and also one of the most influential composers and composition teachers of all time. Aside from his famous students, Alban Berg and Anton Webern, he left a legacy of students just down the road that way at UCLA for the many years that he was on faculty there. By the way, when Schoenberg bought a house in Brentwood, his neighbor right across the street was the actress Shirley Temple. And Schoenberg and Shirley Temple are two people you almost never hear in a sentence together. And so I actually get pleasure out of uh, sharing that, that info uh, with you. So after that early quartet, Schoenberg's style developed quickly and controversially. Only three years after that quartet I just played for you, he wrote the work you're going to hear on uh, this morning's program, and that's Transfigured Night. It was finished in 1899. Schoenberg was only 25 when he wrote this piece. It was originally scored for string sextets, two violins, two violas, two cellos. The premiere took place in Vienna in 1902. Schoenberg later recalled that the premiere, quote, was hissed, caused riots, and fistfights. So this would not be the last time Schoenberg's music caused a, a ruckus. So put very simply, Transfigured Night moves from D major to so D minor to D major. Very straightforward. A lot of pieces do that. Beethoven's Ninth actually does that. However, the journey that Schoenberg takes you to from beginning to end harmonically is one that is um, so convoluted that the conventional tonality, like writing in keys, is kind of bent out of shape and stretched to its limits. It makes sense then a few years afterwards that he went one more step into writing atonal music or music that does not have a key center. So this harmonic journey that he takes you on is what was the controversy when it was first done. He entered it into a composition contest. The judges were hostile towards this piece. One of them said it was like Wagner had the score to Tristan and Isolde while the ink was still wet. Schoenberg took the score, smeared it all over the page, and then turned that in as his composition. Another judge took issue with one of the chords that was in the piece. This judge said, this chord doesn't exist. And there's no record of Schoenberg's response. Appropriately would have been, well, it does now. But that meant that this piece couldn't be performed because as the judges, um, according to their logic, you can't perform a piece with imaginary chords in it. Of course, 120 years of countless performances of Transfigure Night have absolutely proved that wrong, and as you'll hear in about an hour's time also. So Schoenberg completed the string orchestra version, the one you're going to hear today, a couple decades later in 1924. The premiere of that piece took place in an unusual location. That's Newcastle, England. The conductor, though, made sense. It was a gentleman named Edward Clark, who was one of Schoenberg's former pupils. Clark is actually an interesting character in 20th century uh, British music because he 
contributed a lot of new music to uh, British life, seeing what was new on the European continent and playing it in England. For example, Clark gave the British premieres of pieces like Stravinsky's Firebird Suite and Kurt Weill's Three Penny Opera. Schoenberg was inspired to write Transfigure Night on a poem by Richard Damel. In this poem, a man and a woman are walking in the forest at night. They are lovers, but she is married to another man whom she does not love, and she's now expecting a child with her husband. Fearing that her lover will reject her, he actually does the opposite and says that the child that she now bears will be transfigured, and they will raise it together as if it were their own. The work is in two parts, play without a break, and lasts about 30 minutes or so. Schoenberg represents the action of this piece through several themes that are constantly transformed, transfigured throughout the entire 30 minutes. Schoenberg, by the way, had this extraordinary ability to when he would write a theme, he would be able to see many different variations or permutations of that theme almost immediately. That can be shown in the sketches that he wrote for this piece. Also, some of Schoenberg's students said that he had this ability. When they would bring him a piece, he was able to see many, many variations immediately on what they first composed. So the work begins, as I said, with them walking through the forest. And you'll hear a low D in the orchestra, repeating as if to show their footsteps. Then the first melody comes in, it is represent uh, represents the woman's sadness. And you'll hear in this, it's towards the lower end of the orchestra, and the theme is always descending as if to symbolize the sadness. You'll hear through the piece how this theme is changed around and transformed. Sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's more obscured. Here's a section that's about four minutes in, and Schoenberg depicts the woman telling her lover how she has married someone that she does not love. And this theme can be traced back to the one I just played for you. Now here's the moment where she reveals that she's carrying her husband's child.
As I mentioned, Transfigure Night is in two parts, and they last almost exactly the same amount of time. So part two begins without a break about 15 minutes in. And you'll hear in this excerpt, which is the beginning of part two, that the atmosphere completely changes. Whereas in the first part, we're mostly in minor keys throughout. Part two is mostly in major keys. Tenderness that you heard in the music is symbolic of the man showing tenderness to the woman and the, um, the emotion that she's feeling now. So here's the moment where the man says that the woman's child will be transfigured and they will raise it as if their own. At the end of the work, the woman's theme returns. And you'll remember at the beginning of it, it was down in the bottom part of the orchestra. Now at the end of the work, it's at the very upper end of the orchestra, high in the violin section. It has now been changed from D minor to D major. So you hear this is the same melody, but there's uh, quite a difference now in how this sounds. So this part represents the hope that they now both have together. And here's that moment. shortly after this and it ends very quietly but very optimistically in D major you'll also hear the strings move back and forth very quickly up and down on D major chords and it gives the whole ending this kind of luminous quality with this anticipation of a brighter future this then brings us to intermission and then after intermission are the two works by Strauss four last songs and death and transfiguration
I'm going to take them in chronological order. So I'm going to start with Death and Transfiguration and then move to the four last songs. So now we hear the other piece on the program with Transfigure in the title. And you'll remember that Schoenberg was just 25 when he wrote Transfigured Night. Strauss was exactly the same age when he wrote Death and Transfiguration. This was 10 years before Transfigured Night, so 1889. And also Transfigured Night is based on a poem. This time it's by Strauss's friend, Alexander Ritter. The poem is centered around a man who is in bed and he is about to die. The poem's opening is this. In the small shabby room only dimly illuminated by a candle end lies the sick man in bed. During the, the poem and the piece, the man looks back at his youth and his loves and his struggles, and in the end, peace is achieved. Also, like Transfigure Night, Death and Transfiguration is in multiple parts, probably about four or five parts, depending on how you, um, you break it apart, but in one single continuous movement lasting about uh, 25 minutes or so. And there are also several themes or motives, I'll use those words interchangeably, that represent the action, and I'll, I'll take you through some of them. Strauss in this piece didn't name the motives himself, and so I'm going to use the names given by two musicologists, Daniel Harrison and Norman Del Mar. The piece begins very quietly on this rhythm. This can be called either the heartbeat motive or the illness motive. Either way, it's irregular rhythm is indicative of someone who isn't well. Then there's a quiet melody that comes in shortly after that, played by the flute. Harrison calls this the healthy motive, and there's this gentleness about it, this um, kind of look back at the past and youth. And actually, shortly after this, there's a, a more dissonant version of that uh, healthy motive, which sounds like this. And this has appropriately been called the nauseous motive, so the healthy motive, and then the dissonant one is the, the nauseous motive. And also reminiscent of earlier times is this motive, which you hear in the oboe, and it is one of the most important ones of the piece. It's called the spirit motive. Right at the end there was uh, the healthy motive also. So this spirit motive that you hear corresponds with this section of the poem. Is he dreaming at the boundaries of life of the golden days of childhood? 
This is all part of the opening section. And about five minutes in, the first main fast part begins. It begins suddenly and uh, dramatically. I'm going to play this for you now. Listen to the melody in the lower part of the orchestra. It's this kind of almost growling, rising figure. And uh, so here it is now, warning. It's a very loud chord right at the beginning of this excerpt. So this agony or struggle motive is corresponding to the beginning of the second part of the poem. And it reads like this, however, death does not grant for long its victims sleep and dreams. Cruelly, it shakes him awake and starts the battle anew. The urge for life and the power of death. What a horrible struggle. The next four minutes or so of this piece live up to the marking that Strauss put in the score, which is fast and very agitated. There is the one more important theme to bring to your attention, and it happens about three minutes into the section that, that I just started playing for you. So listen now to this rising figure, and it's called the ideal motive, as if hoping for a sort of utopia or at least something better than current conditions. Shortly after this, the next quiet section begins. And you'll hear in the work, it alternates very slow, quiet sections with fast and loud sections. This new section begins with another reoccurrence of the spirit motive as he is again looking back in time. After this, as we're alternating sections, we have another fast and aggressive section. And here, the quiet heartbeat that you heard right at the beginning now comes thundering in. And this, along with the, the agony motive and other motives, are now battling it out. And it's uh, said very clearly in the poem what's happening at this section. Coldly and contemptuously, the world places one barrier after another in his efforts. Whenever he believes he is near his goal, he is thundered by a halt. Mm -hmm. 
the next part of the work, you'll hear, again, these several themes and motives that are traded back and forth very, very quickly. Most notably, though, is the ideal motive, which comes in triumphantly and giving a sense of hope for the future. this moment, hearing it live, as I did last night, it's a really, really tremendous moment when the LA Phil uh, kicks in on that section. So eventually, the quiet music of the beginning returns, and we have the death of the man. The poem says this, death's iron hammer breaks the earthly body in pieces, covers his eyes with the night of death. You'll hear the heartbeat motive loudly, and then a rising scale and then the sound of the gong leads to the man's death. We now enter the final otherworldly section of this piece, and there are two themes that run through it. That's the spirit motive and the ideal motive as the transfiguration begins. <clears throat> this corresponds to the final lines of the poem. But he hears mighty sounds from heaven, what he sought here with longing, world redemption, world transfiguration. The ideal motive now is the one that takes center stage, and it rises quietly and continually higher and higher in the orchestra, and then we come to a quiet close on a C major chord. The way Strauss orchestrated this is he uses almost the entire span of what the orchestra can play from, uh, from here all the way up to here, as if everything now is being transformed or transfigured. So it has a very quiet, actually very uh, optimistic ending. At the end of his life, 60 years after writing this piece, Strauss, who is actually one who never shied away from patting himself on the back, said on his own deathbed, death is just as I composed it in Death and Transfiguration. The year before he died, Strauss was working on some songs for soprano. He has one small one for soprano and piano, and then four songs for soprano and orchestra. These are the last things that he completed. Before he died, Strauss told the great soprano Kirsten Flagstadt that he had hoped that she would sing the premiere, within Strauss's words, a first-class orchestra and a first-class conductor. Strauss's wish came true posthumously in 1950. The premiere of 
of the piece took place with the Philharmonia Orchestra of London. The conductor was the great Willem Furtwängler, and Kirsten Flagstadt was, of course, the soloist. This first class premiere that Strauss had wished for actually was ensured by a financial gift by, of all people, a Maharaja in India. He was a great lover of classical and Indian music, and he bankrolled projects that he was interested in. The record producer and one of the founders of the Philharmonia Orchestra, Walter Legg, visited the Maharaja in southern India, and this was a quote from his experience. He said, the visit was fantastic. The Maharaja was a young man, not yet 30. In one of his palaces, he had a record library containing every imaginable recording of serious music, a large range of loudspeakers, and several grand pianos. The Maharaja is believed to have owned about 20,000 recordings and paid the money to record repertoire that he was interested in and some repertoire that was more obscure that either he couldn't find a recording of or just hadn't been recorded, like symphonies by the 19th century Russian composer Balakarev or the French composer Albert Roussel. When he was told of these Strauss songs, he immediately put up the money for it to pay for the Philharmonic Orchestra, pay for Kirsten Flagstein, and pay to bring in Furtwängler to conduct the performance of it. And he kicked in a little extra so the performance could be recorded, that way he could add it to his collection. Since Strauss died before these songs were premiered, it's actually not clear whether he wanted these four songs to be performed as a set or not. There is one indication on one of the song's uh, titles by, uh, it was by a poem by Hermann Hesse, and he wrote, Songs of Hermann Hesse for High Soprano and Orchestra. So at least those were conceived as a set. So three of them, are by Hermann Hesse, and the, the other one is by the 19th century poet Josef Eichendorf. There's no doubt, though, that this Eichendorf setting fits perfectly the mood and the character of the other three Hesse songs very well. The other question is, what order should these songs be performed in? Because the order Strauss composed them, the order they were premiered in, and the order they were published in were all different. Typically, though, they are performed in the order that they're published in, and that's the order that you're going to hear it on today's concert. Also, you can probably guess, Strauss never came up with this title, Four Last Songs. This was something that the publishers came up with when they, they were publishing them as a set, and they just called it Four Last Songs, and of course, the, the rest is history. The writer George Pradotta calls the Four Last Songs, quote, bewitchingly sensuous and achingly nostalgic. That's a very accurate description of these songs. The, they are linked by the sense of nostalgia, but also an acceptance of death. None of, none of the songs are in a fast tempo. Actually, none of them are very slow either. The first one's marked Allegretto, which is a little bit on the fast side. And then the other three are all marked andante, which is kind of a, a medium uh, level speed. All the songs have this sense of serenity about them. There's no uh, sharp edges here. There's no sudden changes of mood. Interestingly, interestingly, for a work for soloists and orchestra, the orchestra plays almost continually throughout, almost all the instruments playing. 
However, Strauss was such a brilliant orchestrator that the soprano part does cut through entirely, but that doesn't mean that the songs are easy. They're actually very challenging to sing. As I was preparing my talk uh, for today, I contacted a colleague of mine who has sung these songs many times in Europe, and I asked her, well, what, what is it that makes these songs both special to sing, but also challenging? And she said, well, first of all, I waited till I was about 40 before I chose to sing these songs because the voice needs the sense of vocal and uh, emotional maturity. And also what makes the songs difficult is that the soprano sometimes has to sing these very long, florid lines on one breath and that often encompass a wide range of notes. So I'll give you an example of that shortly. So all this hard work requires the soprano to sound absolutely effortless. Yet to give, as my, my colleague said, this sort of silvery and bright tone throughout. And having her last night's concert, you will absolutely hear that with your, uh, the soprano soloist, Golda Schultz. In many ways, this piece is really one of the pinnacles of the soprano repertoire. The first song is called Spring and is the only one that's not about death, but it is this wistful look at the past, with part of it reading, I've dreamed so long of your green leaves and breezy blue sky, the vibrant fragrances and the bird song. So listen now to this excerpt, which is centered around the bird song. And here on the word bird or Vogel in German, the soprano has to sing multiple notes in the high register as if to imitate a bird, and this is all in one breath. So this is one of those lines that my colleague was talking about. So listen to this, sung by the great Gundula Janowitz. all in one breath, and that's, that's one of the demands that Strauss makes on the singer of these pieces. The next two songs, called September and When I Go to Sleep, have this calm acknowledgement of death. September being the month where summer ends is now symbolic of farewell, with uh, lines like this, with a final glance at the roses, too weak to care, it longs for peace. Then with darkness, wherever it gazes, summer slips into sleep. And sleep is in the title of the third song. And in a typical poetic device, sleep is symbolic of death. Here's some lines from that. Into the darkness I swim out free, soul released from all your defenses. Enter the magic astral circle where the gathering of souls commences. The first three songs are the ones by, uh, with text by Herman Hesse. The last song called At Sunset is the setting by Eichendorf. And here in another tr traditional poetic device, sunset is symbolic uh, metaphor for death. And here in this poem, impending death is acknowledged. Final lines of the poem read this. How tired we are of traveling, is this perhaps death? Strauss does a bit of nostalgia here because as his own death approached, as he was writing these songs, he reaches back 60 years 
to the other work of his on the program, Death and Transfiguration. And when the line, is this perhaps death, comes in, Strauss quotes the ideal motive. So here's where that moment comes in. orchestra plays by itself the final moments. That was actually the, the beginning of the, the last moments of the piece. And the work comes to this gentle conclusion. And it being followed by death and transfiguration, it makes complete sense why Maestro Dudamel chose to pair these two pieces on this morning's program. So with these two Strauss pieces on the second half and the Schoenberg on the first half, you have a program where each piece ends peacefully and each piece ends with the sense of quiet hope and serenity. And with the last year and a half that all of us have experienced, this I think makes an absolute perfect start to these first return concerts. So thank you all very much for coming to hear the talk and enjoy today's program. Thank you.